If you have a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, take your friend's uh, mobile phone and look it up on that or whatever you've got to do. Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like that of a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know, anybody who reads their Bible can never mistake what it actually says. You know, there are deceptions and distortions which abound because people either do not read their Bibles and they depend instead on the teachings of others. They may also assume that the Bible is a mystery book that only a special few can decipher. But the truth is the Bible, though it is indeed mystical with many layers of truth, yet... At the same time, the Bible was inspired by God to be written in such a fashion that anyone who desires to know its mysteries can understand them without the aid of another human agency. John wrote in these words in his epistle, I'm writing to you these things because of those who are trying to lead you astray. But as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. You see, the Bible is meant to be read and reread and reread. And each time you do, understanding increases. Now, a lot of people use devotionals and commentaries. But what is missing in many people's experience is a thorough reading through the Bible. Not just lifting verses out and having good thoughts about it. There are great devotionals, and they're encouraging. 
But if you don't put your Bible in context and read it, and if you're just lifting verses out on a daily basis, you're not going to really grasp the whole picture. You need to read it. And if you say, well, I don't have time, I can assure you, if you turn your TV off for a half an hour a day, you'll have time. And you can read larger sections and at a slower pace and think about it and soak it in. In the text before us, we have a clear, clear revelation of Jesus. And the section expresses with absolute clarity that Jesus is, in fact, the God of all creation. He is not a a God or a demigod or a man who became a God. All the statements that John wrote down were due to a combination of actual visions as well as a good comprehension of the imagery that had been given to him through the ancient prophets. And he ties these images to things he learned when he read his Bible. Old Testament predictions. And we see why John, as he saw this, he fell down as a dead man because he knew he was in the presence of God. And he knew that in his sinful self, to be able to see this would probably kill him. But you notice the graciousness of Jesus reaches out with his right hand and touches him and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So I want to look at several themes and get, a spe- get specific regarding what John heard and saw and, and its meaning for us. Where, where were the visions given? It tells us on the Isle of Patmos. It looks like a nice a paradise, doesn't it? <laughs> a place, this is a place where political dissidents were sent for correction and punishment. It's kind of like Siberia to the Greek world. And John, because he refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, and consequently was sent there because he proclaimed Jesus is Lord. And rather than simply execute him, I think possibly they may have thought, well, we'll make an example of him and send him onto this island, and that'll scare people even worse than dying. (laughs) And it was on the Lord's day And it's important that we understand that this is distinguished from the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, the the day of the week that God rested after he created. It was from sundown to sundown on Friday to Saturday. But he's on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And that's when Christians actually were gathering long before the Roman church ever decreed or established that this would be the day or the Christian Sabbath. They were already meeting on this day because they were celebrating the resurrection. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose, because even in his death, he kept the Sabbath. He rested. But they met with this regular rhythm, and they met also daily, because they broke bread together, and they worshiped together, and they loved to be together. And what was the nature of the vision? Well, he says, I was in the Spirit, and it suggests that at some point or another, he was in a a different state of consciousness. He began to hear and see things that were not really common to the natural senses. He heard a loud voice like a trumpet. It would have been a very dramatic and powerful thing. The voice commanded him to write on a scroll what he saw and send it to these specific churches. Seven, in fact. And you remember that not only these literal churches that existed, but the number seven 
is a number of completeness or perfection. And so it's really written for all of us. What was written then is for us. The seven churches represents the complete church of all time, of all ages, and all places. And so these instructions and messages are for our benefit as well. And the subject of the vision, he turned to see the voice that was speaking, and he saw these attributes in Jesus, which were the same attributes of God. Now, I want to explain as we look at each attribute and see how they connect to Jesus. They're going to show that he is equated with clear statements of divinity, not some lesser form, not, not some lower God or in a, some pantheon of gods. Understand, this would have been important for the Greek mind especially because they believed there were all kinds of gods, and you could just add him in if you wanted to. And there are many religions in the world today. I've gone to Thailand. I've gone to um, uh, different places in, in Southeast Asia. And, and as you speak to people that are Buddhists, I've been to Burma. And the question that would be frequently asked as you shared the gospel is, is do I have to get rid of my idols? And sadly, there were missionaries and churches that were just going, oh, don't worry about that, because they thought, well, the Holy Spirit would convict them and they would deal with it later. No, 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 no. And I said, yes, you've got to get rid of them. And they were like, mm. so this is the commitment. I remember speaking to a couple of ladies. One was younger, one was older. And I thought, oh, the younger one is, is the prime target here, the prime prospect, if you will. And she was kind of asking questions, and the older lady was sitting back there. And I thought, well, she's just kind of tolerating out of kindness and hospitality. When it came time to share, uh, to make that commitment, the older one said, do I have to get rid of my idols? And I said, yes. And I had the translator read from Second Thessalonians where it says, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And then there was silence, and it was like, would you like to receive Christ? The younger one said, well, I want to think about it. But the older one says, I want to do it, and I want to do it now. Those idols have done nothing for me. They're worthless. And she gave her heart to Christ that day. Jesus is not some lesser form or something you can add to a myriad of gods. He is God. And the seven golden lampstands were located in the tabernacle of Moses and eventually in Solomon's temple. You've seen pictures of menorahs, right? The seven lights. And again, seven is the number of perfection, showing that Jesus has the perfect life of God shining on him. And at the same time, he is the source of that light itself. In the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, right? And what is it? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then on verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He's called the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, 13 says, In my vision, this is Daniel, had a vision much like John did. And I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. The, the title Son of Man is really crucial. It is the identity of the Messiah, but Jesus hardly ever referred to himself as the Christ or the Messiah, but he always cherished the name the Son of Man. And it means the fullness of humanity. You know, the name Adam in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, where God created man, Adam means man. And God gave Adam dominion and authority and a kingdom to rule over the earth. But Adam decided he would do it independently. He decided that he would decide for himself what was right and what was wrong. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I will decide for myself. How many people in the world live like that? There's about 7 billion, maybe what, 7.5 billion people now? And there's probably almost 7.5 billion people that think like that. I'll decide for myself. Don't impose your morality on me. It's funny that the same people who say don't impose your morality on me are imposing their morality even as we speak. The Son of Man, Jesus, came into this world because the first Adam sinned by rebelling against God and deciding for himself what was right. Jesus, the second Adam, stayed in perfect submission to the will of the Father unto his own death unto his own demise. And because of that, he proved the folly of the first Adam and he reversed the curse. He's the son of man. He's the second Adam. He's the one that's restoring the kingdom and the authority and dominion. And the Bible says it's been given to him and he's just giving you space, you and me space, to decide if we're going to follow him or not. But believe me, he's coming. And if you're not ready for his coming you'll face him in judgment. He's wearing this priestly robe. And it's like the robes that priests wore in the temple. It was this long robe that went to his feet with the golden sash. The book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is our eternal high priest. He goes before the Father. He's our in-between. He's our go-between. He's the one we can go to when we're finding it difficult. When we have failed, he knows our weaknesses because he was a man himself. He knows what it's like to be tempted, even though he didn't sin. But he also comes to the aid of those who are tempted. And we can draw near to him. The robe is also like that which the kings wore. The Bible tells us that Jonathan and Saul, the first king of Israel, and his son were described wearing these robes of royalty. And Jesus is not wearing the tunic of a peasant but he's wearing royal priestly garments. So he's the king of kings. And still further, many prophets wore robes, identifying them as ministers of the word. Daniel saw in his vision a messenger wearing a robe that was stunning. This all comes together that show that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is the great prophet, priest, and king. And not, let no one ever try to claim their words are greater than his words or that they should be replaced because they're not up to date with more um, enlightened society. Listen, if we're so enlightened, why is our country falling apart? Okay? We shouldn't replace his words. We, we have no authority to do that. We're not that smart. We think we are. 
But he's the priest, the king, and he's the prophet. He is the word of God. He stands in the place between God and men, and he rules over all the kingdoms. But like I said, he's not ruling with a rod of iron yet because he's giving space for people to repent. It says that his hair was white like wool. In Daniel 7, 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. This is the Ancient of Days, the title of God himself. And Jesus is being displayed in the glory of God. And his voice sounded like many waters. In Ezekiel 43, 2, it says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. Then he talked about the seven stars. You remember when Job was having a little argument with God? (laughs) You know, just tell me what I did, you know. You don't really have a right to treat me this way unless you can show me that I've done something wrong. And God says to him, can you bind the chains of the Pallades? Or can you loosen Orion's belt? I love looking at Orion in the night sky. I've never been able to reach his belt yet. I'm the first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Jesus wouldn't have said that unless he meant it. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. Isaiah 49.2 says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. His face shining like the sun in all its brilliance. In Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, it says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Do you see the image? He says, I am the living one. In Psalm 42, 2, he says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And then he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Did you know that there are gates in hell? Psalm 9.13 says, Lord, see how many enemies have persecuted me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. And Isaiah 38.10 said, I have, uh, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years. But who has the keys? Who has the keys of death? How do we know? You do if you have Jesus. (laughs) Because he is the undefeatable warrior. And what's the antidote for discouragement? Think about why this book of Revelation was written. It was written to people who were suffering enormously because they were identified with Jesus and refused to call Caesar Lord. The world says, just get along. Just fit in. Just go with the flow of things. Don't, Don't ruffle feathers. But when you say, listen, when it comes down to who's God, I'm not compromising. And people start getting irritated with you. 
How can a person endure through tribulation and hatred aimed at them? There's only one antidote, and that's to take a clear look at the one for whom you're suffering. We need a clear view of who we are living for, the one who gave his life for us that was willing to sacrifice for our redemption. We need a clear understanding that our king cannot be defeated. He is neither weak nor foolish. He is not one who is barely capable of winning the war. He's the God who has already conquered and is using us to take the spoils of his victory before he unleashes his wrath upon the earth. And what do I mean using us to take the spoils? He died for souls. And we take the spoils of his victory by sharing the gospel with people. And the Holy Spirit plucks people out of darkness and into light. And when that day is finished, he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. We serve the God of all the universe who's done everything to bring us into a kingdom that shall have no end. Folks, if you have this idea that we're good people and we've got to somehow make a bad God happy, you've got the wrong idea. We are not good people. There's none who does good, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have a good God who's doing everything he can to save you from yourself. And he has all authority and dominion and power and glory. And our fight is not for a losing cause. You know, there are people that will die even though they know it's a losing cause. But ours is not a losing cause. It's not even a cause. It's not even a temporal ideal. We are of the kingdom that has no end. Our king is an able warrior who fights our battles with us. And this is why these things are revealed in Revelation, that we do not lose heart and we do not lose hope when things are dire. He is worthy. He is able. He is God. And we are his people, if indeed we are in his covenant of grace. Worship team, would you please come? And as the team comes, would you bow your heads? I don't ask people to pray a prayer and raise their hand because there are a lot of people that have done that and they think, well, now I'm right with God because I prayed a prayer. Let me tell you, what it takes is repentance. You've got to repent of your plan of salvation. You've got to repent of your idea of what what it takes to get to heaven or to be a good person or anything else. You repent of that. And then you surrender. You surrender to God. You say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And he promises he'll help you get it done. It's belief. And belief is commitment. And so as we sing this song, if you want to receive Christ, if you haven't done so already, you come this altar and you sacrifice yourself on that altar and God raises you up a completely new person in Christ that's his promise